please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 18. We'll read verses 1 through 20. Um, there's a, this whole section of Revelation reflecting on the, the fall of the great city of Babylon, representing really all of the kingdoms of the world in rebellion against God. That runs through chapter 18 and part of chapter 19, and we're going to read the whole thing over the next two weeks, split into two parts, um, as we consider Nahum chapter 2 and 3, draw about the destruction of one particular city, not Babylon, but one that was an empire before Babylon, Nineveh. And uh, I'll warn you now, the next two weeks are not going to be very cheerful sermon texts. They're dire proclamations of judgment and woe on, on this city of Nineveh. Um, lest we think that, oh, well, this is just because it's the Old Testament, it's just these Old Testament prophets who are all about doom and gloom, we must remember that that judgment on Nineveh is looking forward to a greater judgment to come. When the Lord Jesus Christ brings about that uh, final victory over all of his enemies and over all of the nations from which no nation, by the way, is exempt. So let's uh, hear what the Apostle John has to say in Revelation 18, his prophetic vision, um, and related in our minds to what we're going to hear from the prophet Nahum. Re- uh, Revelation 18, verses 1 through 20. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, Silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. 
the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Amen. Let's turn to Nahum chapter 2 now. Remember, very near the end of the Old Testament, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Right here in the middle of the Minor Prophets. All right, Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Amen. You may be seated. Some of the most uh, precious promises in the Bible 
are found in Romans chapter 8, and, and one of them in that chapter that means a great deal to me, starts in verse 31, where the Apostle Paul there says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? This echoes some other parts of Bible history. For example, in Numbers 14, Joshua and Caleb, the two uh, good spies who are trying to convince the people of Israel to go on up into the promised land. Don't be afraid. And they say, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us, they say. Second Kings 6, Elisha tells his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Um, Psalm 118 um, uh, there's the prayer, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This continues on into the New Testament, past Romans, when in 1 John 4, John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. These are precious promises for the people of God. If God is for us, then who can be against us? It's hard to imagine um, a passage with a more different tone and message than Nahum chapter 2. Directed here at the city of Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of those great uh, perennial enemies of the people of God. Uh, Perennial, because they keep coming back, but not immortal. Not immortal, as this chapter prophesies the destruction of Nineveh and the final end of Assyria's imperial power in their world. I've titled this sermon, Words You Never Want to Hear. If I were to ask you in a classroom context, the whiteboard here, I bet we could fill up that whiteboard pretty quickly with things you would never want to hear, the kinds of tragic news you'd never want to get. But I wonder if we did that little exercise, if this sentence from this chapter would come to mind, the very last verse, which surely ought to be long at the top of any such list. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. Words you never want to hear, but which really sum up the message for Nineveh of this chapter, which we're going to look at in three parts this morning. Verses 1 through 9, flood and plunder. Verses 10 to 12, the desolated den. And then verse 13, the bottom line. Flood and plunder, the desolated den, and the bottom line. All right, well, uh, to begin with, I want to relate the beginning of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 1. They they tie together um, here. Uh, I want to point something out that I found very helpful from uh, commentator Trimper Longman here. Chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 2, verse 1, share this in common. 
Both of them are a call to look up and see something important. It's coming towards the audience in each verse. But the two audiences are, are very different, the end of one, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and the two sights that they're supposed to see are also very different. Chapter 1, verse 15, it's, uh, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. Look at this messenger running on the mountains, carrying this good news of victory, publishing, publishing peace. And you remember from last time how the bad news for the city of Nineveh and the Assyrians is actually very good news for Israel, for the people of God, because Nineveh's defeat is not just about judging Nineveh, that's part of it, but that judgment on Nineveh is actually an integral part of God's plan of salvation for his own people. And so when Israel looks up, that's what they're supposed to see, this messenger coming towards them and declaring to them the victory, bringing the news of the victory of God over Nineveh, which means peace for Israel. Okay, well, chapter 2, verse 1, the audience changes. Now it's Nineveh being addressed. Once again, they're told to watch, to look up, pay attention, watch the road, but for different reasons, because the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. You're going to need it. And, by the way, it's not going to do you any good, is the implication here. It's a call to arms. It's a warning. It's like the bomb sirens going off in London right before the Blitz. You know, the air raid's about to begin. The bombs are about to start falling. Except, of course, they didn't have planes and bombs. Uh, They had chariots and spears. And so that's what Nahum describes in verse 3. Before we get there, I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's look back at verse 2. So um, most of this chapter doesn't mention Israel at all. This whole book is mainly directed against Nineveh. However, the few verses that do mention Israel are very important because they tell us the meaning, the significance of this judgment on Nineveh. Um, so here in verse 2, it's almost like Nahum is saying, now, now wait a second, don't forget. He's trying to keep our attention focused, make sure we don't miss the covenantal context for this uh, holy war of God against Nineveh. So he's Uh, reminding us of the significance, the meaning of everything that's about to follow. This is not just about God wiping out one of his enemies. This is about God rescuing and vindicating his covenant people. For the Lord, verse 2, is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Remember, for many decades, Assyria had been the dominant imperial power in the ancient Near East, and um, more than once they had made very destructive incursions into the Promised Land, including especially the time that they sacked the city of Samaria, carried off the ten northern tribes into permanent exile in the 8th century. And then there was a time, we talked about a lot in the, when we studied the book of Micah, when they invaded Judah, came very close to defeating Jerusalem in the 7th century under, under King Hezekiah. Uh, And all the meanwhile, though they didn't succeed in taking Jerusalem, they did ravage the whole countryside of Judah all around. Great destruction. So from one point of view, of course, we have to remember that Israel and Judah were largely to blame for those experiences that they had, those judgments that fell on Israel and Judah. 
Um, they had richly deserved those uh, covenant experiences of covenant curse. So there's a sense in which Israel and Judah got no more than they deserved at the hand of God from those Assyrian invasions. But now the time has come for Judah to experience a different aspect of the covenant, for them to experience the restoring grace of God, to have relief, at least for a time, from all of that plundering and destruction, for them to see God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his side of the covenant by defending them against their foreign foe, um, as we talked about last time from Revelation, our passage, our New Testament passage last week, destroying the destroyers of the earth. Remember that. That's the great hope for God's people, is that God is going to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Now, I may help you to know a couple of historical facts at this point. Um, one is that as the Assyrian Empire collapsed in the 7th century BC, and the city of Babylon began to ascend in power, kind of take its place as the big 800-pound gorilla in the Middle East, um, in, again, that whole region of Mesopotamia and beyond. Um, the city of Nineveh was indeed sacked. It was destroyed by allies of Babylon, the Medes, in the year 612 B.C. It's a major date in ancient Near Eastern history, the destruction of Nineveh, 612 B.C., um, and interestingly, one of the strategies of the Medes um, that they used uh, in the siege and defeat of the city was they engineered a way to divert the Tigris River. Remember there in Mesopotamia, there are the two great rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. The Tigris runs right by the city of Nineveh, which, by the way, is modern um, Mosul, Iraq. And if you look on a map of Iraq, you can see the Tigris River is running right there by Mosul, and the city of Assyria is actually in, inside the, uh, that modern city of Mosul. And um, so what they did is they diverted the Tigris River into the city to flood it and to aid in this, with all that destructive power of the water in their um, sacking of the city. Um, I'm being helped, by the way, here on the historical side by Tremper Longman again. Well, this is a well-established historical event. It's recorded by a couple of ancient historians, including Xenophon, some of you may have heard of. Um, anyway, knowing that about the historical circumstances of the destruction of Nineveh, I think helps us shed some light on Nahum's prophetic foretelling of that event here in chapter 2, what it's going to be like. So in verses 3 and 4, there are these soldiers dressed in red with chariots uh, racing madly through the streets and the squares. So you can just think about the, the terror and the, just the pandemonium of a situation like this where the Medes have breached the city walls. They're basically, they basically have free reign to do whatever they like with this city that they've just conquered. And it's, it's chaos everywhere um, as the city is, is defeated. And then in verses 6 and 8, isn't it remarkable that Nahum specifically mentions the river gates being opened so that the palace, it seems, gets washed away in the floodwaters. Um, and then Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away, it says. There's certainly a, um, 
symbolism here, I guess we could say. It's not a great leap to think about the floodwaters of judgment in Noah's day, um, now wiping out this one particular rebellious city. But it's also interesting that Nineveh was quite literally flooded with river water when it was overrun by the Medes. I think that helps us understand the imagery, the prophetic imagery here. Okay, now uh, verse 7 some more details here. Verse 7 uh, turns out is kind of difficult to translate. See different. If you look at several different English translations, you might see a few different ways of rendering it. Um, people debate whether the word translated mistress there in verse 7 in the ESV is uh, maybe the queen of Assyria, the, the emperor's wife. Um, it could be that. It's also likely, though, and many people think it's referring to the statue of a uh, main goddess, possibly Ishtar, um, that would have been, had, a, had this kind of central and prominent place in the city center. But now that big idol in the center of the city is being carried off by the enemy. Their god is being stolen, showing that that false god's uh, powerlessness to protect this city against the Lord. If your god can be stolen... By an invading army, it's not much of a god, is it? Um, verse 8 pictures just this total rout where it says, Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. It's not just the fleeing citizens or soldiers either. It's, it's also the great wealth of this great city flowing away from it, never to return. Um, as that, that, uh, as Nineveh is like that pool whose waters run away, the people are running away, the soldiers are running away, and the wealth is running away irrevocably. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure of the wealth of all precious things. There's no end to it because Assyria, of course, has spent so much time accumulating and accumulating all this wealth uh, stolen from other nations, including Israel and Judah, by the way, would have been simply vast, it's hard to imagine, the kind of treasure trove that would be in an imperial capital like this, the windfall that would then come to any army that could defeat that city and take away all that immense plunder for themselves. What you see here is that what Nineveh has done to countless cities around the Middle East is now being done to Nineveh as all of that treasure that they once gathered in for themselves is now being washed away by the Lord and His judgment. I know this is a little bit nerdy. I try not to do this too often, but it may help a couple of you to think of uh, Saruman's dam above Isengard and the Ents tear it down. Water all rushes in, fills up uh, Saruman's pits and factories and everything. And Treebeard says... The filth of Saruman is washing away. Something like that happening here to Nineveh, except this is no fantasy. And just as it's hard for us to imagine the the vast wealth and scale of the plunder being carried off that day, it's also hard for us to imagine perhaps the, the barbarity and the terror of a defeat like this of one godless nation by another godless nation, merciless and cruel and total, as the phrase was used in chapter 1, a complete end. I mentioned just a minute ago, 
what's happening to Nineveh in this vision is simply what Nineveh has previously done to many, many other cities, including many in Israel and Judah. That leads us then to verses 10 to 12, the desolated den. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Now, Nineveh was used to being the one inflicting this kind of terror and despair. They were not used to being on the receiving end. That's why in verse 11, the Lord compares them to a lion. It was pretty neat this past week. um, This chapter just happened to be up for our regular family worship Bible reading on Friday night this week. We've been in the middle of the Minor Prophets, and lo and behold, Friday we get to Nahum chapter 2. And... um, so I asked the girls if they knew what it meant when we say that lions are at the top of the food chain, right? The top of the food chain. And that's where Assyria had been for many years, right? They had been at the top of the food chain of ancient Near Eastern civilization. The lion doesn't have any predators, right? They asked me, is there any animal that eats lions? And I had to think, of, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that's what it means to be at the top of the food chain, to be the, the apex predator, that's what Assyria was. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. It's, well, nobody except for vultures after they die. Now the great hunter has become the hunted, and the great devourer is being devoured. Nahum asks, where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. He's looking back on the time when Assyria was unrivaled, tearing enough for his cubs, strangling prey for his lionesses. He was filling up his caves with prey, his dens with torn flesh. Now, what a difference. That den, Nineveh, has been flooded out. That king of beasts been reduced to a wet cat, helpless, humiliated. I think it's worth just taking a minute here. We have to be careful. Um, There can be a tendency to read uh, prophetic passages where the Lord is speaking to Israel and be too quick to relate them to our life in our own nation. We can make this equivalence between Israel and the United States. That simply is not appropriate. It's not biblical. It doesn't make sense in the way that the Lord is revealing himself. Nahum is a little exceptional, though, because this is not about a judgment on Israel. It's about a judgment on the nations, among which our own nation takes its place. And so I just think it's worth taking a minute to reflect on the the idea that being at the top of the military, economic, geopolitical food chain is no guarantee of security and prosperity for any nation. In fact, the testimony of history in general, and Bible history in particular, suggests the opposite, that all empires decline and fall, and that every nation that does not bow the knee to God, the Creator, to Jesus Christ, the King, will eventually fall under His 
just judgment. History is littered with empires like Nineveh and Assyria. And yet somehow, this is the thing, somehow it's hard for people living in a nation or empire at the peak of its power and prosperity to take seriously the potential that things can go anywhere from here but up. Economists look at the past and they look at the future and they say, we're just going to keep seeing tremendous growth, hand over fist. Where could it possibly end? But in vast prosperity and power. It reminds me of the disclaimer that you get when there's uh, advertisements for different kinds of investments when it says past performance is not a guarantee of future results. And yet how easy it is to assume that because we've been safe and wealthy and powerful and comfortable in the past, that surely we always will be forgetting as a people that any experience of these things can only come as a blessing of the common grace of God, treating us less than what our sins deserve. They're not what any nation or people deserves, and all of those things can be stripped away by the Lord and his sovereign power at any moment. And here's the very sobering thought, which is that the longer a nation or a people group live in high-handed rebellion and idolatry and rejection of God, the more they are storing up for themselves a richly deserved end like that of Nineveh. I think it's fair to say that what's true of nations is also true of individuals and of families. You know what they say about how the bigger they are, the harder they fall. What a disaster it would be. Each of us, each of us needs to reflect seriously on our own. What a disaster it would be to realize too late that when I was kind of trucking along through life, comfortable in my good health and my strong finances and my nice house and my cool stuff, was not realizing that because of a hard and impenitent heart, I was storing up wrath for myself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, as Romans 2 says. And that I am in danger of hearing those words to Nineveh that none of us should ever want to hear. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice here um, how the Lord is going to demolish, systematically dismantle four things that constitute a nation's strength. So the chariots are going to be burned. That's Nineveh's military power. Next, it's, it's people are going to be killed. The rising generation of citizens, so the sword will devour your young lions. Next, it says, I will cut off your prey from the earth. So what Nineveh was previously consuming, it's no longer going to be able to get that inflow of wealth and power anymore. And then lastly, the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Think of that perhaps as diplomatic power, just the power of communication, power of the word. Before, when Assyria spoke, people had to listen. That's just, be, that's just the way it was, because they were the ones in charge of the world. But now, 
They're no longer going to have that commanding voice, that commanding presence. Nobody will have to listen to them anymore. Nobody will have to give two cents about what they have to say. Their propaganda will no longer be what shapes the worldview of their world. In every phase of life, the Lord is going to dismantle their power and demonstrate His sovereignty as God over military power, over life and death, over wealth and poverty, and over the truth. So in every phase of life, Nineveh is going to experience what it is like to know God as an enemy, as a righteous and holy judge before whom we stand condemned. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. I want you to realize that that is not a message for Nineveh alone. That is, in the end, the message for all sinners who have not found forgiveness and safety through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, all of the judgments pronounced by the Old Testament prophets, including this one on Nineveh, They are historical, pointing to a time, a particular judgment of God in history, but they are also pointing beyond themselves. They are pictures, living pictures in history of the greater judgment to come. People dress up in Civil War costumes, go to Gettysburg and have a Civil War reenactment. This judgment against Nineveh is going to be a living live fire, pre-enactment of the great judgment of the last day. Wages of sin for you and me. This isn't just about some ancient civilization that was forgotten 2,500 years ago. The wages of sin for you and me are the same as they were for this wicked city. It's death. That's what we deserve from the hand of God. And if it were only up to us, What we would get on that day, these same words that we would hear, Behold, I am against you. Or as Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, because I never knew you. That's why it is so urgent for you today. Think about and say your own name in your head. For you today to hear God's message of good news for you in Jesus. Take the place of this disastrous news that's the only alternative. The good news in Jesus that even though this message is the one you deserve, behold, I'm against you, that God has done something else. He's offered to you a different message because he has sent his son, his own son, from heaven to first to live the perfect life that you failed to live, to die in your place, the death you deserve to die. But I want you to think about this. In his death, on the cross, what did Jesus experience that day? Your sin was wrapped around him, and he was shielding you from the wrath of God that you deserved as he was bearing the full force of it in his own body and soul. You need to come to terms with as the people of God today is that on the cross, it was Jesus who felt the crushing weight of these words. In your place, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Those words have been spoken concerning your sin, but not to you. They were spoken 
against Christ. It's as though Christ heard those words in your place. As the wrath of God was bent against him so that you might be spared that judgment. That's the gospel of the death of Christ. And so, beloved, if you've ever doubted whether God is really for you or not, if you've ever doubted whether he's really good, whether he really loves you, whether he's really out for your best interests, it is at Jesus that you must look, especially at Jesus on the cross. And I think, as Apostle Paul reasons with us so sensibly, If God didn't spare his own son, but he would give him up for us all in that sacrifice, for us, for you, if God would do that, then how could he possibly not be willing in Christ freely to give you all things? Because any other gift that God might give you would be so much less than that. Christ and his cross, that is the evidence that God is for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? A chapter like Nahum 2 should sober us, especially as we consider ourselves as citizens, not only of the heavenly city, the kingdom of God, but also of an earthly city, living as we do in a nation that's very powerful, very prosperous by the standards of the world. And yet we think, how does God see our land? And it should lead us to examine ourselves, repentance and humility, to implore God's mercy for ourselves and for the people that we live among. But I also want to encourage you, this this chapter should not lead uh, to discouragement or despair those who are trusting in Christ. For all of its hard warnings, while it does picture for us the just judgment of God, it is picturing for us the judgment that you have been saved from. The judgment that Jesus bore in your place on the cross. And the judgment also that he will one day, that same Lord Jesus now risen from the dead, will carry out on all of his enemies and yours when he comes again. And that is good news for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the prophet Nahum and for these disturbing, uncomfortable words to remind us of the wrath from which we must flee into the arms of Christ, who heard those words, Behold, I am against you on the cross, so that we could be received as your beloved children in union with him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.